Could a president order SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival? That's an official act in order to SEAL Team 6? He, he would have to be and would speedily be impeached and convicted. Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. Happy Martin Luther King Day to all. Donald Trump set up the equivalent of temporary campaign headquarters in two courtrooms this week, skipping the campaign trail in Iowa in favor of tub-thumping diatribes in and out of chambers in which his fate is being decided. On the last day of his fraud trial, Trump asked to make a closing statement which the judge permitted on the condition that Trump's state of the law and evidence. He didn't agree, but grabbed the mic anyway and delivered a wholly inappropriate and lie-laden stump speech, complete with personal insults to the judge and the AG who brought the case. Never was it clear that there is no daylight between Trump's legal strategy and his political strategy. Trump also showed up personally in the appellate court that was considering the appeal from Judge Tanya Chutkin's denial of his immunity motion in the January 6th election interference trial. He got to watch his counsel get pummeled by questions from the bench that exposed the brazenness and incoherence of his position on immunity, which is pretty close to a claim he can do whatever he likes as president so long as he is not impeached and convicted for it. Trump's Republican allies in the House staged a sort of show trial about referring Hunter Biden to the Department of Justice for criminal contempt for not complying with their subpoena. But Biden stole their thunder by showing up in the middle of the debate, vividly illustrating his willingness to comply with the subpoena so long as his testimony is public, not behind closed doors where his hostile interrogators can later misrepresent what he said. All these maneuvers, not coincidentally, occur on the eve of the first primary, the Iowa caucuses, which take place tonight, and they can only be understood through that political prism. To help us do just that, we welcome a terrific trio of experts in the convoluted and Machiavellian ways of Washington, D.C. And they are Katie Benner. Katie covers the Justice Department for the New York Times. She was part of a team that won the Pulitzer Prize in 2018. She previously worked in the Times San Francisco Bureau and as a reporter for Bloomberg and Fortune magazine. Katie, thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Norm Ornstein, a senior fellow emeritus at the American Enterprise Institute. He's been studying politics, elections, and U.S. Congress for more than four decades a contributing editor for The Atlantic and co-host of the podcast, The Really Good Podcast, Words Matter with Kavita Patel. He's also a prolific author, including his bestseller, One Nation After Trump, a guide for the perplexed, the disillusioned, the desperate, and the not yet deported. Norm Ornstein, thanks for returning to Talking Feds. Always a pleasure, Harry. And Elliot Williams, Elliot was in the second Talking Feds ever, just a mere 250 or so episodes ago. He's a principal in the Rabin Group's government affairs practice, 
and a CNN legal analyst. He served nearly eight years in the Obama administration, in the DOJ, and in Customs Enforcement. And before that, he was Judiciary Counselor to Chuck Schumer. Elliot Williams, good to see you. And we were talking before, and I think you're on the verge of inking a contract for your first book, yeah? It's inked, uh, (laughs) and it'll be on Bernard Getz, the 1984 New York City subway shooter. It's going to be a doozy. So Wow. Gosh, so much happens around then in New York City as well, yeah? So many things, and they are all, as I hope to have on my tombstone, the words convoluted and Machiavellian. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. All right. Okay, let's start with Trump's civil trial before Judge Arthur Engeron. It ended as tumultuously as it played out in the preceding three months with this drama where Trump wanted to do a closing argument and Engeron forbade him. And then he just jumped ahead and stole the mic anyway and delivered this stream of consciousness diatribe, including personal insults to the attorney general, the judge himself, really the entire case. What do you think? Did he just have a spontaneous outburst and couldn't control himself? Or was the whole thing planned even for the previous few days? I would say he planned. He knew exactly what he was going to do. He knew that after the judge had turned him down, he could get one of his lawyers to give him a little forbearance. I will have to say here, and obviously, you know, I got to believe that from the beginning, as with many of the other trials, he is trying to reach a larger public. I think he's playing a big gamble here that he can parlay this into winning and then he will erase everything from the books. I just make one other small point, which I think is kind of amusing, that a lot of his defenders were outraged that the judge did not postpone this because his mother-in-law died. And it was, how can you do this? How can you be so heartless? And of course, the poor bereft Donald Trump then went off to do a campaign event in Iowa showing how upset he was about losing his mother-in-law, whose name he probably doesn't even know. Anybody remember, uh, this is going real old school, but the Herman Melville book, Bartleby the Scrivener? Of course, actually. This guy who can't just uh, adhere to the rules. And he simply just sits in his office and says, I would would much rather not do that. And it confounds his employees because they are not his colleagues. They're just not used to somebody who does not conform to the rules. And it ends up ending in tragedy. And you see some of that here a little bit. And you, you kind of have with Donald Trump where no one has known what to do with this man who does not conform to rules. And what was fascinating this week, I thought, was a, a bit of a Bartleby the Scrivener moment with this speech in court that, you know, he's a guy that has defied rules and thought, I can just speak in court. Of course I can. I'll be allowed to do that. I'll be allowed to give an opening statement because everything is inherently political. And it got thwarted. The judge literally said no. I think probably for the first time in Donald Trump's life, in this case that I don't think is the most consequential legal matter he will confront. Yeah, there's reputational stuff with it on account of the fact that it's business and his identity and so on. But it's not the most consequential. It's not a criminal case or anything like that. But he really got slapped down in a profound way by making this request to turn this proceeding into a bit of a political circus in contravention of the norms and rules that we're all used to, a la Bartleby. And just somebody said no. And I don't think he knew what to do with it. I don't think he was expecting it because, as I said, everything sort of ends up being a political circus. And this was the one moment in all of these proceedings that I think actually Trump got a little bit of comeuppance. 
Well, it was even a little more exquisite than that because Engeron said, you've got to follow these rules. Will you or won't you? He never responds. Will you or won't you? And then he gets shut down. And I'm continually amazed by his brazenness. We shouldn't be anymore. But so that was the state of play. And then all of a sudden at the proceedings, he's just grabs the microphone essentially. And Engeron says, okay, but you know the... And he never responds. He just starts talking, right? Yeah. With the caveat that the death of a family member, regardless of what the speculation in People magazine might be about the relationship between Trump and Melania Trump and so on, but the death of a close family member is a legitimate basis for extending a legal proceeding or having someone delay coming in or whatever else. That's okay. It's all of the other stuff that I think was sort of the problem. I would just take only slight issue with Elliot. This is a very important proceeding for him. His whole persona is wrapped up in being the ultra-successful multi-billionaire who has worked magic for decades. And when he was cut off the Forbes 400 list, the 400 richest, he went ballistic. And this has the potential of completely undermining his business life forcing him to get rid of properties, very possibly having banks foreclose on others. It's a disaster for him in terms of his own self-image. And for a narcissistic sociopath like this, that's big stuff. (laughs) All right. Well, let's go back to the sort of Bartleby turn, which I think is excellent. He obviously is doing it for broader popular and political reasons. It doesn't play well inside uh, Judge Engeron's courtroom. But is this very fact of being such a rebel that he alone can disregard like no one else can in our normal workaday world and that of his supporters, whatever the rules are, is that just add to his luster among those who support him? I don't think we've seen support for him wane amongst his core supporters, so I don't know that that really matters either way, whether he spoke or didn't speak. Um, I think that one of the things about his remarks that was interesting is that he talked about how perfect his behavior was and how he had done nothing wrong. And I think that most people looking at this case would agree that his best line of defense was that he had made honest mistakes. And so he actually undercut the judge's ability to find a way to go easy on him. He basically took away his best argument himself through this ranting, which is probably one of the reasons why it's unwise for lawyers to let their clients speak at the very end of a trial and say insane things. So he's hurt himself legally. To your point, though, politically, it doesn't really matter either way. I think that what we're going to see is he'll use the trials as campaign events. He'll use the trials as ways to say that he's being victimized. And the thing that works well for him is that every time he says the system is against me, if the system legitimately is punitive, tries to keep him in check, accuses him of wrongdoing, it is actually only evidence for his supporters that he is being victimized. I mean, there's no reason why he wouldn't go down this road because it works for him. If you believe Donald Trump and you believe that he's being persecuted, of course, a judge finding that he has defrauded banks would fit into that worldview. It certainly wouldn't undermine it. So I I think that he has nothing to lose by doing this. The Trumpian inability to give some kind of nuanced half measure, every call is the perfect call. Another thing about Trump and sort of the sense of victimhood, or at least being able to talk about legal points here, and something he does, and frankly, quite successfully, is take 
a statement that is partially true legally that people will believe, his supporters will believe, and twist it to its extreme. And so case in point, this happened in the course of the trial. He said in these remarks, this sort of freewheeling press conference that he'd uh, given at one point, he said, can you believe we won at the appeals court? We won. Like this whole case isn't worth anything at all. And we won. How can they tell me that I lost? This is all a sham. Now, they won minor points, legal points at, in that appeal. But the key point coming out of that was that the trial could proceed with some of the evidence restricted and with Ivanka Trump being removed as a defendant from the case. He did not win outright. At the, now, but people, supporters will hear that kind of stuff and think, oh my gosh, can you believe that? Donald Trump wanted a higher court and yet they're still putting him on trial because the whole system is stacked against him and thereby stacked against us as his supporters. And it's actually an effective strategy that he follows. You take one sentence that is incontrovertible, we won, we lost, and whatever, and then twist it to an extreme to a point that it's, that it's just unbelievable. So what's your thought? Enron says he'll give an uh, opinion by the end of the month. We're talking about a couple years on appeal, right? And if his overall strategy is I'll become president and somehow undo all this damage, you can see pretty easily what happens with a federal criminal prosecution. He just orders them to stand down. But does you know Trump, the, the dictator, as he promises to be at least the first day, what's his line of attack if he's trying to reverse the damage. And it's going to be, I agree with you, Norm, a pretty big hit, both financially, but also in his uh, ongoing ability to do business. Correct me if I'm wrong, Harry, but as I understand it in New York, if he appeals something like this, he has to put the money in an escrow account. So if the judge says, $250 250 million and now Tish is asking for 370 million. Let's say it's 250 million. He is going to have to put 250 million dollars in cash or in some other form into an escrow account and it's not clear he has that cash. So it's going to hurt him regardless. But down the road he has no ability even as a president to challenge a ruling in a state court. So What's happening in Georgia or will happen in Georgia and what's happening in New York. And then we have a criminal trial to follow, plus this other civil trial going back to the sexual assault. He's got headaches, multiple headaches, regardless. Now, he shows up here, right, instead of going to Iowa. Obviously, you know, it matters to him more than other things. What is his mindset here that makes it a priority for him among the, what's he got, you know, half a dozen or more pretty serious legal cases that he's got to defend. He wants to show up in a lot of places. And I think it gets back to what Katie and Elliot were talking about. His whole theme now is I am a victim. I was effective. And now they're all coming after me, this entire establishment. He went to Iowa for an event, but he doesn't have to be in Iowa. And remember, in Iowa today, and the caucuses, you have to show up. It's 15 below with heavy winds. And that, I suspect, may benefit Trump because my guess is that his supporters 
are more ardent about supporting him than are the supporters of the other candidates who may decide that there are better things for them to do to shelter in place. But, you know, he's turning this into a showcase for victimhood. And that is going to be his theme going forward. And, you know, it's taking a big risk, but that's, I think, a strategy that politically can be effective for him in the short run. Let's close out with a follow-up on just that point. So it's been remarkable, although we're now on years and years of remarkable um, events, that even the 91 criminal counts seem, as Katie said, not to really make a dent. We do have this polling indicating that were he to be convicted of a crime, that his support might plummet or, you know, a pretty decent fraction. What about something like this? If he get because this is, as both you and Elliot were, were saying, a big part of his brand. If he uh, takes it on the chin here, do you see it as having a kind of political cost? I don't know that that will really impact him politically amongst his core supporters. Again, he's already set up a schematic framework of the world in which anytime he's punished, it's because he's a victim. It's not because he did something wrong. And so this reinforces that kind of mythology. It does not take away from it. And it makes people feel more sympathetic toward him. I don't see any of these things really working against him. Even the idea that if he were criminally convicted, that that would impact his support. It might impact his support amongst establishment Washington Republicans who have so far aided and abetted him, when you look at the Mitch McConnells of the world, perhaps at that point, and let's face it, it's really establishment Washington Republicans in Congress who are the only people who have any real ability to derail uh, the Trump machine. Perhaps at that point, they would decide it's not worth catering to him and enabling him anymore. But outside of that, I don't think that his core supporters, people voting for him, are going to think that that's a reason not to vote for him when he's told them that a criminal conviction is proof that he is being attacked by the system. You have to believe in the legitimacy of the process to hold someone accountable for violating some aspect of that process. Because he's convinced millions of people that the process itself is tainted, necessarily his support will only stay the same or increase and get more fervent on account of the conviction. He's been persecuted by this system that he deems to be illegitimate. That's true of his core supporters. And I think he could take an AR-15 and mow down everybody on Fifth Avenue in broad daylight, and it wouldn't affect the core. But we have to remember that there are probably 250,000 key voters in seven states, college-educated suburban Republicans and independents, who are not a part of the core, but who might otherwise vote for him. A lot of them did vote for him in 2016, who may have second thoughts. And these are key because we're talking about states where the margins are going to be thin no matter what. Now, I have to put the no labels at all part of this aside, which is a pernicious force that could make a big difference otherwise. But if you get voters who are who've always voted Republican, but they're looking at this and saying, I don't know about this guy. And then he's convicted, including convicted, you know, of aiding and abetting an insurrection. It could hurt him politically in the places where it matters the most. I would be more convinced by that if we didn't have polling showing that more and more and more mainstream Republicans are starting to believe things like 
January 6th was not a violent insurrection, was not a violent attack. I mean, I think that the ways in which Trump pushes back on facts and creates his own narrative of reality, I feel like at least establishment Washington underestimated it for so long and then doesn't really understand how powerful it is until we see polls like, oh, you know, whatever majority percentage of Republicans really doubts that January 6th was all that bad. Whereas I'm sure if you'd asked everybody on January 7th, you would have gotten a really different answer. I was thinking about that just uh, this week when we have the Eugene Carroll case coming up and Judge Kaplan ruled the Access Hollywood tape could come in, which I think, by the way, on a legal standpoint might be a potential problem. But uh, it just reminded me, that was the very first time that I said to myself with some confidence, ah, okay, now the guy's dead. <laughs> and and that there's been how many events since then, you know, including each of these. And Katie even doubts the polling, which does seem a little perplexing that while charge after charge after charge is meaningless, somehow if one jury somewhere in deep blue D.C. Uh, convicts, that that would make the big difference. Uh, you're, you're also pretty dubious about that, Elliot, yeah? Yeah, I, I think the big blue D.C. is the big point, and this, this really picks up on— Or New York, right? Or New York or, or Atlanta, to some extent, increasingly, given that it's Atlanta and not, you know, White County, Georgia— but this is some of the data points that Katie was noting earlier, that there's, I, I think, increasing polarization, not just about the system, but about blue pockets that are going after the former president. And I just have a hard time believing that this narrative that's been spun about liberal prosecutors in blue states coming after the president. I believe there's a big segment of the community that's never going to accept. Yeah. Well, that's true. But 15 times burned, 16th time shy, whatever. It's been an amazing series of escapes. All right, let's bring into this the other big legal showdown for Trump this week, the immunity argument in the D.C. Uh, circuit. Can I just start with a top line sense? How'd it go, do you think? Not well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you, had, you had judges appointed by Republican and Democratic presidents expressing extreme skepticism about the idea that after leaving office, the president has blanket immunity for anything that he did in office. And they came at it in different ways, and they had uh, different questions. But top line, it's clear that nobody thinks that this is true, you know, but it's, it's going to be a matter of how they rule, you know, how narrow will it be. One option would be to send this back down to the district court to Judge Chutkin to weigh in on a question that she sort of avoided when she made her original ruling, whether or not his acts, the acts at issue in the indictment, whether or not they were part of his role as president. And if she has to go back and decide that, I mean, we're looking at a really long road in terms of getting this question finally settled. But it's clear that they don't, they don't buy the big argument. I mean, if there's another remand, it might be another stay, right? Right, exactly. We could be dealing with this for a long time. Hopefully not, but hopefully we'll just get a clear judgment from them. But at the end of the day, to your question about the top line, did they buy his argument? I think the answer is no. Along those lines, uh, Harry's another attorney, Norman, Katie or not, but you both watched a lot of trials and proceedings and so on. It's very lonely at that lectern 
when you're arguing a case. It is very hard. And there's that point when the judge throws out a hypothetical that just eviscerates your case. And you can't lie or say no. You just have to sort of make do with the fact that, no, I'm making an argument that's a clunker and the judge is giving me a hypothetical that's not even that extreme and I can't win. And for that, that was Judge Florence Pan with this drone strike against a political opponent argument. There is no answer to that that would have been sufficient other than a president does not have the authority to bomb his opponent because he's mad at him using the official tools of the presidency, the levers of power of the presidency. And if they actually take on the immunity argument, and, my, and you know, Katie touched on this a little bit, they may not. They may be able to make it go away by saying, look, you need to wait till after you're convicted if you are convicted to raise this argument and just not even touch it. But if they touch the immunity argument and do weigh the, the, the specifics of it, it's Part of me almost felt for his attorneys there, almost, but it's just such a shameful argument that they were making that I <laughs> I got over my compassion there. And he actually prevaricated. I mean, he was a dead man walking, as you say, so yes or no. Well, yes, if he's in... He, Come he literally on. wouldn't answer. You're right. That was such a bad moment. At that moment, I thought, since he had clerked for Judge Ludig, that I really wanted to talk to Mike Ludig and ask him about this guy. <laughs> but it was a logical follow-up to that, that I really wanted to have one of the judges ask, which is, okay, so what if he then goes to SEAL Team 6 and says, I want you to kill all the members of the House and Senate who want to impeach me and convict me? Because you could go down that slippery slope right into the abyss. I have a hard time believing that uh, these judges are going to want to delay this any further. I expect a very quick and pretty decisive ruling because it's awfully clear. And the question is whether the Supreme Court even doesn't take it up after that, which I think my guess is that uh, John Roberts will urge his colleagues to let this one slide because there is nothing good that can come of them taking it up. They do have already a few problems on their hands. I was a law clerk for two different judges. Harry, you clerked for the Supreme Court, too, yeah. if I recall, right? Yeah. So, you know, something that I think listeners may not be aware of either is that judges were preparing for weeks, if not months, for any oral argument, particularly this one. They would have had dozens, if not hundreds of pages of legal arguments from the parties and outside entities and so on. They know what the law and facts are of this case and might be tweaking their opinion based on what they heard at the oral argument. But the notion that this is going to take six months to write is just sort of nonsense, just given how much paper they have before them. My judges, we would have a, not necessarily have an opinion written going in, but a detailed memorandum for the judge that you could convert into an opinion. They're ready. Oh, I think in this one, with this kind of expedited schedule, they actually were writing already, and I think we will see it this week. But Katie's point is strong, it seems to me, because if they don't affirm her in lockstep, they were definitely exploring different avenues and sort of talking to one another. And if it's not that kind of clean affirmance, that could be a, another round. And we're talking about a trial that already is probably delayed a couple months, right, to June. How much later can it go and still start and finish in a decisive way before the November election? I think Norm's point is not said enough. The Supreme Court takes cases where they think to themselves, only the Supreme Court can really figure this one out. This is not an only the Supreme Court can figure this one out. So if the appeals panel... And even if it goes to the entire appeals court and every judge has to weigh in, 
I think it it should end there. And even more, I think they can wire it to make that less likely to happen. And especially because they've got a whole nother one that's going to tie him in knots uh, that is just pivotal on the election. Really, it's the last thing they they want is to be perceived as having put the, you know. Yeah, the thumb on the scale. Thumb there, you know. <laughs> it's the Supreme Court, right? Exactly. You beat me to it, Harry. To Katie's point, this is the kind of case that they truly don't have to. The opinion will be reasoned, bipartisan, ideally not with a dissent or anything. They'll be speaking unanimously. Contrast that to this insurrection question coming out of Colorado and Maine and so on, where there's vast diversity among the states of the opinions they're coming to in terms of who can make the decision, how they can make the decision, what the factors are for determining whether you need to be convicted or impeached or this. And so that's a mess. And if it gets to them, they kind of have to. This is totally different. It's now time to take a moment for our sidebar feature, which explains some of the issues and relationships that are prominent in the news. Today's sidebar is about campaign finance laws and how Congress has attempted over time to counter the influence of money in politics. And to explain this concept, I'm thrilled to welcome Mark Hamill. Mark Hamill is an actor, voice artist, and writer. He's most widely known for his role as Luke Skywalker in the Star Wars franchise, beginning with the original 1977 film and subsequently winning three Saturn Awards for his performances in The Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, and The Last Jedi. Mark is also a prolific voice actor in animation and video games, perhaps most well-known for his role as the Joker in various DC Comics projects, commencing with Batman, the animated series in 1992. I give you Mark Hamill on campaign finance laws. Although the Supreme Court has struck down many basic efforts to regulate campaign contributions and financing, there remain multiple limitations in the general area. The Federal Elections Commission, FEC, an independent regulatory agency that serves, quote, to disclose campaign finance information, to enforce the provisions of the law, such as the limits and prohibitions on contributions, and to oversee the public funding of presidential elections, unquote, oversees most of them. The FEC's functions are critical in ensuring the legitimacy, transparency, and security of federal elections. Campaign finance law becomes increasingly important as spending in federal elections continues to increase from year to year. The first federal campaign finance laws were introduced in 1907 by the Tillman Act, which blocked corporations and banks from giving money to federal campaigns. Since then, several reforms and changes have been made to the structures and rules of federal campaign finance. In 1974, the FEC was created to enforce the Federal Election Campaign Act of 1971. These requirements included disclosing of campaign expenditures and limits on contributions by individuals to campaigns. Currently, an individual may only give $3,300 to a candidate per election and only $5,000 to political action committees, PACs, per year. PACs are organizations that pool funds for political expenditures, including campaigning for or against candidates or laws. 
A major change to federal campaign finance occurred with the Supreme Court's ruling in Citizens United versus FEC, 2010. The majority opinion struck down prohibitions against independent expenditures on campaigns by corporations. Independent expenditures are considered money spent on elections in favor or against candidates or laws that are not in coordination with said political campaign. This developed the groundwork for super PACs, organizations which may raise and spend unlimited funds in support of a political cause or campaign so long as it remains independent of said campaign. Critics contend that as a result of these changes, the FEC and federal campaign finance law are ineffective in limiting the influence of money in politics. For Talking Feds, I'm Mark Hamill. Thank you so much, Mark Hamill. Last year, Mark became an ambassador of the United24 fundraising platform, which raises funds to support Ukraine in the war of Russian aggression. To find out more how you can support Ukraine, you can head over to u24.gov.ua. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we look at three different techniques for making rose wine to see if there's truly a best way to rose. First, Rosé is a type of wine that's actually produced quite similarly to reds, but the fermentation time of the grape is reduced, giving rosé its signature pink color. The first technique for making rosé is the skin contact method, in which black-skinned grapes such as Pinot Noir are crushed but allowed to remain in contact with the juice for a short period of time. After about 6 to 48 hours, as opposed to weeks or months for the reds, the skins are separated. This method is most frequently used in the top rosé-producing region of the world, Provence, and throughout the south of France. The second method is called saignée, which is the French word for bleeding. This method creates both a rosé and a red wine. Early in the maceration process, some of the pink juice created from the grape must is removed to make the rosé, while the remaining juice becomes a more concentrated red. A rosé made from this method tends to be richer and darker in both color and fruit flavor. This method is more rarely used, but it can be found more often in rosés from Spain, Napa, and Chile. The third method is blending. Contrary to what some people think, blending is not just a 50-50 pour of red and white wine. Instead, blending is where a white grape, such as Chardonnay, is blended with a red grape, and it's the most popular way to make a rosé champagne. Although popular in champagne, this method is used in still rosés as well. In fact, some winemakers in Provence choose to blend small percentages of white grape varieties into their rosés. It's not always obvious or easy to know which method was used to make a particular rosé, 
But the expert guides at Total Wine & More can help you navigate our wondrous selection to find a rosé that makes your day. So find what you love and love what you find only at Total Wine & More. Cheers! Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. All right, well, this is something we're going to know quite soon, including the, the rationale and what it might augur in terms of delay. We're at one of my favorite moments in every episode these days where we get to start talking about something other than Donald Trump, although it's still a kind of a gnarly uh, topic. So on Wednesday of last week, Hunter Biden was in Washington and made a surprise brief appearance before the committee that was debating whether to refer him for criminal contempt charges. And then, then the next day in Los Angeles, pleading not guilty to this nine felony tax indictment. There's not much that happens that's impromptu and unchoreographed in Congress, <laughs> even if they make it look like it. This was one, you know, he, like, what the hell? He showed up. Members were totally flummoxed. Who won the showdown? Did it, you know, was it a smart move for him? I think everybody won. And here's why. (laughs) Every single party to that got what they wanted. Hunter Biden got the publicity and the airtime and the, what do you mean they can't let me test? I just want to come testify before Congress. And he got to appear to be the aggrieved person who's being held out. House Republicans got to wag their finger at Hunter Biden and call him, you know, white privilege with no balls or whatever she said. Well, there was that too, right? Yeah. House Democrats got to bang their shoe on the table and say, this is all an outrage. Look at this. Look at Steve Bannon who committed contempt and yada, yada, yada. Everybody won except... Joe Biden, who probably is the party that, you know, the White House in general, I think, saw this as another distraction they didn't need. But all the the actual legal parties got what they wanted, even if it wasn't testimony. All right, well, let's stick with that for a moment, right? I, you know, where all the attacks on Trump seem not to be having much purchase. Hunter Biden's not in a happy position and now facing a much more serious indictment. We know that we know why they want to do it, but is it having any success? Does this actually stick to the president and become a, a tougher and tougher problem as the campaign wears on? I'm skeptical. I think it weighs, as Elliot said, on Joe Biden. It's very tough to see what uh, Hunter's going through and to have him in some ways attached to it. I can't see that it sways a single voter. And there's one part of this I will say that puzzles me. The House Republicans have had a field day with this. I actually think they were embarrassed in a lot of ways. And it was not just because some of the Democrats said, let him testify, and they wouldn't, but also because they came up with a list of all of the Republicans sitting there who themselves had defied subpoenas. And I thought when Jared Moskowitz said, I'm going to introduce an amendment. I will join you in the contempt citation for Hunter. If you join me in contempt citations, and he listed all of those members who had defied their own subpoenas. Now, that may not play beyond the usual suspects. But there's another part of this that puzzles me. Because this same week, as we've had Republicans pound away at, uh, at Joe Biden for taking money from China and being influenced by his son, as we got evidence that Donald Trump had taken money from China and he admitted it and said he gave something in return. And his kids are now, of course, should be on the hot seat for all of the money that they took and made. 
And the emoluments report, right. Yeah. Democrats have the Senate. It just baffles me as to why they have not tried to use their investigative ability to look into what Donald Trump did, which is treasonous, taking money from foreign governments and admitting you gave them something in return. And of course, Jared Kushner with the Emirates, with Saudi Arabia, that they have not used their bully pulpit for this is baffling. Political malpractice. (laughs) And you would know. Let's close out then with if this is going to have any legs. First got to go to the full house where uh, new speaker Mike Johnson has some problems already trying to uh, figure out the next budget crisis. Then it would go to Maine, where I think there'd be a pretty good argument that he's there. He's complying with the subpoena. How's he in contempt? But what do you see happening now going forward after this party line committee committee's vote? I think that if he's held in contempt by the full house and it's referred to the Justice Department, the Justice Department, of course, would take the referral and consider it as they do all referrals. They're not going to ignore it out of hand. Right. And they're going to take a look at it, deliberate over it, and come to a conclusion. And also keep in mind that this has happened in the past and the Justice Department, just because it takes the referral and considers it doesn't mean that they actually bring charges. So for example, Mark Meadows, great example. And people were very shocked and horrified. And of course, all the Democrats lost their mind. They were like, ah, but he's the enemy. The Justice Department should... It's like, no. They looked at the facts and decided, actually, this does not rise to the level of a contempt charge. It's not criminal, right? They're going to do the exact same thing. They're going to take seriously whatever Congress hands to them, even if everything that led up to that moment was a complete shit show circus. They're going to treat it with seriousness because it's a referral from Congress and they're going to deliberate and come to a decision. And there's a good chance that much like with Meadows, they'll say, we just don't think so. For similar reasons. It's not cut and dried. The guy is showing up. You know, remember, they're talking about whether to bring a criminal case, take liberty away. They think about that stuff seriously. And they're also documenting, Hunter Biden's people are documenting it in letters. We attempted to go on this date to negotiate, and these are the terms by which we would appear. Contrast that to, say, Steve Bannon, who literally declared war on Congress the moment that subpoena came in the mail. He's much more, sort of Katie says, in this Mark Meadows world where, yeah, he's not really complying, but he's at least making some attempt, whether it's good faith or not, to show up. And I think you have a really hard time charging him, just like Mark Meadows. It's also that James Comer had said in the past, we want him to testify. And that's true, whether it's in person or behind closed doors. So, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, they've already impeached themselves on this one when it goes <laughs> to the Justice Department. Yeah, I agree. All right, uh, man, this conversation has gone really fast, but we are just about out of time. We got a minute for everyone's favorite feature of five words or fewer. And today's question, kind of a hypothetical So Judge Engeron retires and writes a memoir about his just-completed fraud trial. What's the title? Five words or fewer, please. Maybe one damn thing after another. (laughs) (laughs) And it's a perfect five. Mine would be, I wish I'd retired earlier. (laughs) Oh, I forgot that it's only five words because the title (laughs) I had, I'm so proud of, which is, you can shoot someone on Fifth Avenue, but just don't overvalue your, your duplex there. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot, Harry. I haven't been on in a minute. And oh. you were on the second show, but yes. All right. And I'm going with control your client. Pretty please. <laughs> nice. 
We're out of time. Thank you very much to Katie, Norm, and Elliot. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also subscribe to us on YouTube, where we are posting full episodes, talking books, and bonus video content. You can follow us on Twitter, at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon. Talking Feds is a completely independent production, one of the very few. So if you like the work we do and are inclined to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. And here's some news. You can now leave voicemails with your questions for me and our guests. Whether it's for Talking Five or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments, all you have to do is call 727-279-5339 and leave a voice message. That's 727-279-5339. You can also still email us your questions at questions at talkingfeds.com. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Catherine Devine, Associate Producer Meredith McCabe, Sound Engineering by Matt McArdle, Our Research Producer is Zeke Reed, Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our Contributing Writers, Production Assistance by Akshaj Turbailu. Thanks very much to the great Mark Hamill for explaining campaign finance laws. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later. <laughs>